You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed or provide meat for his people. Therefore, for when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them all around their dwellings, and they ate. Well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. 
how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, a tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought him, to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Okay, Psalm 78, a long, long psalm texting me. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 78, and uh, I want to think about, for just a moment, some things that we inherit from our parents. Anybody inherit anything from their parents? There are some things that we get, like maybe our, our father's hair, like myself, or we get our mother's eyes or something like that. You can think of things that you've inherited from your parents naturally. Um, interesting, I found a few things that you might be surprised to have some genetic um, some genetic connections that parents can pass on to their children. Uh, this one probably doesn't surprise you, athleticism. The U.S. National Library of Medicine researchers believe that anywhere from 30 to 80% of athleticism is due to genetic factors. And even the best marathon runners are slightly different on a genetic level than short-distance speed runners. So that probably doesn't surprise you. Musical ability seems to have some, uh, some connection biologically. According to a 2014 
research published in Frontiers in Psychology, perfect pitch and tone deafness run in families. So if you can't sing, your parents probably can't sing either, but um, not always, but there seems to be a connection. This one's interesting, facial expressions. Uh, A Scientific American study in 2006 uh, showed that some people who were born blind were among a pair of siblings separated at birth. They made similar facial expressions, even though they'd never seen their parents or each other. And so there was this, this sense that your facial expressions in uh, some ways are inherited. The insomnia. Uh, the University of Warwick in 2017 revealed that insomnia can be inherited, but it's only passed down on the maternal side. So uh, if you can't sleep, blame your mom. All right. How you feel about exercise whether you're drawn to exercise or kind of loathe exercise, that tends to have a biological connection. How fast you age. A 2010 study in Nature Genetics said that, uh, that, um, that aging can kind of uh, have some biological factors. Sneezing at the sun. Anybody like that? You step into the sun and you sneeze? Apparently that's a thing. I didn't know that, but there's a, it's a thing. And apparently there's a study in... T- that it's called phonetic sneezing, that when the sunlight hits your face, you sneeze. And apparently you have more than a 50% chance of inheriting that behavior if one of your parents does that. They step outside and they sneeze. So being a morning person, being a morning person tends to run in families, interestingly enough. Uh, So our body clocks, our circadian rhythms, they can actually look at some of our genetics and make a pretty accurate assessment on whether we're morning people or afternoon people or evening people. Uh, there is some connection there. So we do inherit certain things from our parents. Now, those are some odd ones, but there's actually some characteristics that say that uh, infidelity in marriage sometimes can be passed down. Uh, Rage, aggression, and violence has some biological factors at play. Alcoholism and substance abuse can often a propensity to fall into that. Uh, While we're still always responsible for our own actions, there can be some biological predispositions that we inherit from our parents. So, which goes to that 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 classic um, debate on nature versus nurture. You know, are we just living out what our biology says, what our genetics say, or does our environment shape that? Is it nature or nurture that determines who we are, and and to what extent do they play off of each other? And that's, uh, is it genetics or environment? The Bible says quite a bit, actually, about this. And the Bible tells us that we did inherit a certain nature from our parents. We, did, we do, in, in a sense, have this nature. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we do inherit from our parents, I think particularly from our father, a sin nature, a brokenness before God. Romans 5 talks about this. Just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we're all sinners because we all descend from Adam, the first sinner. And that disposition of rebellion against God, the guilt of that sin is passed down from generation to generation. And so my kids inherited a sin nature from me, a broken, rebellious heart, a guilt before God they inherited before me. And they will live according to that nature. So in a sense, the Bible is affirming that we will live according to our natures. That we have this disposition, this guilt of sin, this rebellion against God, that we will inevitably live out to varying degrees of intensity in rebellion against God. Romans, uh, Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, One trespass left all 
all men, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So we might think, well, that's not fair, but it's the reality, and it's actually what sets up the whole thing for the gospel. Just as one man's sin plunged all of us into guilt, so also one man's obedience, particularly Jesus Christ, can lead us all to salvation. So it works both ways. You might go, well, that's not fair that I was born guilty before God, born separated from God, born with a nature that rebels against God. Well, actually, the good news of the gospel is the flip side of that is that someone, there can be a new Adam who brings you back into relationship with God. Ephesians 2, 3 says that we were all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the Bible actually definitely talks about nature being supreme in that way, in terms of our spiritual life, being born spiritually dead, and there's nothing we can do about it. But the Bible also tells us there, there is a nurture, there is a body of knowledge that we can be taught, that is infused with divine power, that can actually change and overcome our sin nature. So we're not just determined, we're not just like destined to live out necessarily uh, the, the, inherent, uh, the inherited sin that our parents gave us. There is a way for, for that sin to be overcome, for that nature to be changed. And so that comes through a body of knowledge. And that's what we're going to see about in this message. Um, and so I'm titling this message, We Must Teach Our Children. Because we have handed our children a spiritual death sentence. But God has given us the responsibility to teach a body of knowledge that can actually literally change their nature, change their destiny, change their eternity. So maybe you have kids today, I want you to listen very carefully. And if you don't have kids, you probably were somebody's kid. And so you've inherited some, some things. So I have three reasons why I think you should listen to this sermon. One is that you have inherited a mess from your parents that you can't do anything about. And you know it, don't you? You feel it inside. That there are some things that you received that are a total mess. And you feel it. It haunts you. Only the Bible can explain why that is and give you what you need to change it. The second reason why I think you want to hear the rest of this message is that you have or will probably pass along a mess to others if you have children. Your kids will inherit your sin nature. That's one thing I've noticed about my kids is that they're often mirrors. <laughs> and the things that, both, that most frustrate me or disappoint me or anger me are the things that they got from me, right? I'm seeing myself in them, and I'm humbled. And then the third reason is that you, as members of this church, have entered into a covenant commitment. We are now one body with every other single member of this church. So that means that the, the mess you inherited is now shared with others and becomes other church members' mess in the body, Right? means that your tendencies, your qualities, your dispositions that you inherited from your parents, now we share in all of them together. So now your issues are my issues, and my issues are your issues. And that's part of what it means to be a covenant body of Christ. And so what do we do? Are we just stuck singing the melody written in our genetics? Are we enslaved to our nature? Are we destined to be just like our parents in all the worst ways? A lot of us inherited a lot of good things, but we did inherit a sin nature. The secular world has no answer to this question. We were just born this way, and we should just celebrate it as good. But we all know intuitively it's not all good, is it? Why is the world not getting better if just being what we were born, if we just live that way, why does the world keep getting worse? Why do we keep messing up? Why do we sense this guilt? 
The Bible tells us why. The Bible tells us that we're naturally condemned because of the nature that we inherited and we confirm in our actions. But there is good news that our nature can be changed. And it comes by a message, an event in history with a history. There's a story, a plot line, an accomplishment that when we believe it, it's infused with divine power to change any story, any nature, and any disposition instantaneously, progressively, and ultimately permanently and eternally. There's good news. We don't have to live according to the internal mess that we inherited and then we passed on. There is good news. This is a history, a story, a plot line of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's God's story in Scripture. And so we must teach our children this, okay? So let's get to Psalm 78. We'll go through this psalm very quickly. But the, here's, here's going to be our outline today. In verses 1 through 3, we will learn that we cannot teach what we do not have. So before we can pass along this saving story of redemption, we have to have it ourselves. And so the psalm starts in the first three verses talking about how we need to embrace this story for ourselves. Then in verses 4 through 8, we get the reason why we must teach our children this story. Why we must teach it. Then in verses 9 through 64, we get a summary of at least part of the story that we must teach. What's the content of the story? Basically, it's going to boil down to who we are and who God is. And then in the last few verses, we're going to see that there is hell and hope ahead. There's hell and hope ahead, depending on how we relate to this story that's told in Scripture. Okay? So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Cannot teach what we do not have. Verse, uh, verses 1 through 3. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So it's this call to come and hear the story again. Come and hear the story of who we are and who God is and what that means. Come and hear it for yourselves. The story that has been told for generations. The story that has been told since the beginning. That our fathers have told us. This is not a new story. We're not making up a new story of redemption. A new story of salvation. A new story about God. But we are retelling the same story because it still has the power to save. And so we need to know it for ourselves. Um, I don't know if any of you watch The Office. I don't uh, necessarily commend all of it to you, but there is one where Michael uh, believes that he's about to become a father. And so he and Dwight then begin to record a video where he's going to teach his son all the life skills. And so he's, he's jumping a car and he's just plugging things everywhere and he's got just all these things. And what you find out is that he doesn't have any idea. He's trying to pass on information that he doesn't know. And so you can just... what funny about it is that it would be a mess if you followed his advice, right? And so we need to know, and the same is true for us, is that we need to know the story of redemption. We need to know the character of God. We need to know the darkness of our own hearts. We need to know it for ourselves before we have any hope of passing it on to someone else. And so there's a call right here at the beginning of this psalm to receive fully the story of God, the story of the gospel. We must possess it before we can teach it. Verses 4 through 8. We will not hide them from our children. So there's this resolve that if we know this story, we can't just keep this story to ourselves. We've got to share it. And so you have this commitment. You have this resolve. We will, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders that he has done. 
he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them. And the children unborn, the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren. So we're going to tell our children because we want the gospel to go where we can't go, which is the future, 100 years into the future. Every generation has to take the responsibility to know the story and pass it on so that it can go the only place we can't go, which is the future. Um, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Okay, So this is like a big relay race of the gospel going, the good news of God's story going to generation to generation. But look at this, verse 7. Here's why. So that they should have set their hope in God and forget not the works of God and keep His commandments, verse 8, and that they should not be like their fathers. Isn't that funny? We want to tell the story of our fathers, but we don't want to repeat the sins and disobedience and hard-heartedness of our fathers. We're going to tell this story because we have failed so badly to walk with God, and we want our, ki- want our kids to know deeper. We want our kids to, to learn from our mistakes. We do not want our kids to be just like us. And he go on, goes on to find that they should not be like their fathers. We have to tell the history. We have to tell the story, or else history will repeat itself. He, they, they will just live out their sin nature just like every generation has. So let's tell the story that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and, re- and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose heart was not faithful to God. So one of the motivations to be genuinely godly is because you want your kids to know Jesus, right? I want to possess it for myself, and I want my kids to know Jesus better than I did. I want my kids' marriage to be stronger than my marriage. I want them to be better parents than I am. I want them to be more faithful with the gospel than I have been. And so there's this zeal to know it and this motivation to teach our children, which brings us to 9 through 64, what we must teach our children. Here's here's the body of content that these people are to uh, present to their children. This is the call to the Israelite people and to us as well. And basically, it, it, it breaks down to teaching our children who we are and teaching our children who God is who we are, and who God is. Let's just take a quick survey of this big section here. And look at all the they verbs, all right? Or, uh, they, yeah, look at all the, the they, the, the, the sentences that have the word they, speaking to human beings, particularly Israel, particularly unfaithful Israel. But this is really true of all of us. Uh, this is true really of all of us human beings, and I think this is the principle we must teach our children. Look at verse 10, they did not keep God's covenant. Verse 11, they forgot his works. Verse 17, they sinned still more. Verse 18, they tested God in their heart. Verse 19, they spoke against God. Verse 22, they did not believe God nor trust in his saving power. Verse 32, they still sinned. They did not believe. Verse 36, they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Verse 37, their heart was not steadfast for him, toward him. They were not faithful to him, to his covenant. Verse 40, often they rebelled against him. Verse 41, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42, they did not remember his power. Verse 56, they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. Verse 57, they twisted like a deceitful bow. They didn't shoot straight. It's like a bow and arrow. It was a a twisted bow that didn't shoot straight. Their lives were twisted and deceptive. Verse 58, they provoked him to anger. And they moved him to jealousy with their idols. So this is, we we need to teach our children 
that we are just not that awesome. I'm afraid that sometimes in our culture we teach about the good old days and how good we used to be, and we wish this coming generation was a little bit more like us. The Bible says the exact opposite. Oh, please don't repeat our sins. We want to whitewash our history, don't we? We want to whitewash it and make it sound better than it really was. And then we want to criticize the coming generation about how bad they're going to be and how much of a failure they are to us. And the scriptures are completely opposite. Remember the sins that you've committed and have hope that the next generation will learn from them and advance further. We're so far from the biblical narrative. We, we have hope in the past, how great the good old days were, and such a criticism for our children and it's the exact opposite. No, I want my children to walk with God, and so I'm going to tell them how much we've failed. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the he verbs referring to God. So human beings are all spiritual failures, even Israel, a spiritual failure. And look at the he. Verse 12, he performed wonders. Verse 13, he divided the sea and let them pass through. Verse 14, he led them with a cloud. Verse 15, he split rocks in the wilderness. Verse 16, he made streams come out of the rock. Verse 20, he struck the rocks so that the water gushed out. Verse 23, he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Verse 25, he sent them food in abundance. Verse 26, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds, and sand of the sea. He let them fall in the midst of the camp all around their dwellings. That's the kind of hunting I think I could do, just animals falling dead in front of you. I think I could pull that off. He gave them what they craved, and yet the anger rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them. Verse 34, he killed them, and, he sought when, and they sought him. Verse 38, yet, even though he disciplined them and even took some of their lives, look at his disposition. Verse 38, yet he, being compassionate, he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they are flesh. Verse 42, he remembered them from the foe. Verse 43, he performed his signs in Egypt. Verse 44, he turned their rivers to blood. He sent this is a, a picture of the Exodus here, of all that he did to conquer Egypt's gods and deliver the people from tyranny. This grumbling, rebellious people, God continues to shower blessing upon blessing. He sent them among the swarms. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail. He gave over the cattle to the hail. He let loose his burning anger. This was on the oppressors of Israel. He struck down every firstborn, verse 52, and he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Verse 53, he led them in safety so that they were not afraid by the sea overwhelmed, by, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. He brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won, and he drove out nations before them. He apportioned for them a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Verse 59, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. He gave his people over to the sword and he invented his wrath in his, her in, in his heritage. So we have, this, we have this spiritual failure that is humanity, and we have this covenant-loving faithfulness of God. And we've got to tell our children, we've got to pass along the story of our failure and God's faithfulness. God has been faithful, not because we've deserved it, but because he's loving and he's gracious and he's kind and he keeps his promises. And yes, he disciplines sometimes severely, but he does so um, 
out of compassion, ultimately compassion to draw his people back to himself. So we tend, we, tend to, we tend to look at things completely backwards, but this is how we need to tell our history of who we are, spiritual failures, and who God is, covenant, faithful, loving God. Verses 9 through 16, we see that we are forgetters, yet God works and provides. In verses 17 through 31, we find that we are doubters. Could God provide manna in the desert? He just led them out of Egypt, right? And yet they're doubting that he, his goodness and his power. And God is powerful and good. In verses 32 through 48, we hear part of Israel's history. And it says that we are hypocrites, yet God is just and compassionate. He does punish the hypocrisy, but ultimately it's compassion to these hypocrites, compassionate to hypocrites. Verses 41 through 55, we are testers of God, yet God redeems and protects. And ultimately, in verses 56 through 64, we're idolaters, yet he's worthy and he's faithful. Do you see the progression there? It goes from forgetting the works of God to now doubting his character to now faking, being hypocritical, to eventually stepping into rebellion and testing God, and ultimately we become idolaters, where we worship something else entirely, from forgetfulness to idolatry. And all of us have that tendency. One day where we're not thinking about God very much, or we're just forgetful or whatever, enough of those days string together and we'll find that, oh no, I am worshiping something other than God. You see the progression that they follow there, from forgetfulness to idolatry. And we have that same tendency in us. So, verses 65 through 72, there is hell and hope ahead. This is, this is just fascinating, a few verses. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. So, all of that stuff, all of God's, uh, all of the ways that God, it was almost like he was sleepwalking, right? And it's like, well, now wait till he wakes up. You ever had that, like, you know, you did something to your siblings, and it's like, oh, wait till dad gets home, right? There is going to be a final judgment, is what this is calling for. The Lord awoke, then the Lord awoke from his sleep. Finally, he's done. And like a strong man shouting with kind of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame, right? There will come a day when Christ will return, and the time of patience is over. And the time of judgment is here. He rejected the tent of Joseph, and he did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. We have this kind of pictured here that it, it, finally God had said enough with Ephraim. Finally, he'd said enough, and he moved his place of dwelling from the tabernacle in Shiloh, and he was going to bring it into uh, the temple. And there's this picture of David that's coming. So there's this hope that's here. So there's this sense of like God's patience has run out. And now it's time for judgment. Material blessings we see here do not change hearts. God gave them everything, right? He provided everything, yet their hearts were not changed. So you might sit there thinking, you know, if, if only my circumstances would change. If only I were to get married or get a better job or if only we had kids, then all of a sudden my life would be better. My heart would be changed. I would love God more. And it's like, that's not exactly how it works. Like all of these blessings don't change the heart. God will not put up with his dishonor forever. He will vindicate his name. And then look at verses 68. But he chose Mount Zion, which he loves. And that's where the, the temple is going to be. So God set his affection. 
afflictions on Judah, not because Judah deserved it, but because God is kind and he hadn't given up on his people. The time when he was done, he, he had rendered his judgment on Ephraim. Now he's going to go to Judah and he's going to give Judah a gift. He's going to preserve his promises through Judah. He built his sanctuary like high heavens, like the earth, and he has which he has founded forever. So there is a hell that's coming to those who persist in their rebellion, but there's also a hope ahead, a blessing, an undeserved blessing for those who will walk with him. Verse 70, he chose David, his servant, and brought him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. In verse 72, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. So there was going to be one who would come and lead the people, one who would shepherd them, one who would care for them. And they're looking forward to this David. Now, this psalm is sort of open-ended because it is talking about David, but it's also kind of it's kind of open-ended. It's like the story of Jonah. Like Jonah kind of leaves you on the cliffhanger like, well, what happened? What happened? Did Jonah change his mind? Did he not? Like what happened? This psalm kind of just ends here. There's this hope like all throughout the period of Exodus and then in the desert and then when they conquered the land and then through the period of the judges, Israel has been unfaithful and God has been faithful. And even when Israel wanted to pick a king, they picked a bad king and now God's going to pick the king. God's going to pick the king, and there's this hopefulness that the man God chooses is going to be better. The man God chooses is going to lead us to a better position. The man God chooses will be one who can actually change the nature of our, of our, uh, of our people. And the reality is, is that David does lead God's people well, but ultimately he's incomplete. He's insufficient. So this hope that's, that's resting on David is not actually fully fulfilled in David. David, in some ways, fulfills this. He is a good king. He does shepherd them well. He does lead them to a good place. But ultimately, if you know the rest of your Bible, Israel slides right back into their idolatry. And so this promise that we see in David, there needs to be a better David. There needs to be the kind of David that can come and actually just change hearts, who doesn't just lead the people well, but actually can change their nature, can actually make them um, into new people can change their hearts. 28 in Christ. There's a couple of connections in, in this psalm. There's several, but uh, two major ones that I want to point out. So this Psalm 78 is inspired and inerrant, but incomplete, right? It leaves you hanging like this hopefulness of David. He's going to turn it around. And we realize that while David was great and in some ways did turn it around, ultimately he couldn't change the human heart. But there is one who does. Matthew 13, 34 through 35 says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. So he began to tell the story. He began to tell the history of man's failure and God's faithfulness. And he told it in parables. And he told Israel's history. He's telling this story again and again. And he's telling it in parables. And verse 35 says, This was to fill what, fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Which is a quote from verse, I think, 2 or 3 of Psalm 78. So now we have one who's going to come and can teach us, can teach us God's children, and he's going to tell us a story to, he is going to create an event. He is going to give us something that we can possess that will actually change our nature, change our hearts, and it's something that we can pass down to our children. And so Jesus comes, and he comes bringing this message, this message 
that there is a God in heaven, that God is faithful, that man is sinful, and man can be changed by God. In John chapter 6, we have an ironic quoting of, um, of Psalm 78. So Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And then the people coming the next day seek him out. He'd cross the street. He'd cross the, not the street. He'd cross the, the, the lake and gone to the other side of the lake. And all these people came finding him because they wanted another meal. They wanted his blessings. And so here's what happens in John chapter 6. When, they, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When, he had found, when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs fill of the loaves. He's saying, you don't really want me. You want my stuff. And Israel was guilty of that all along. They liked when God gave them stuff. But they never really wanted God, right? They liked the deliverance. They liked the manna in the desert sometimes. They didn't really like God. And the same thing has happened. Israel is now looking God in the flesh in Jesus, and they're guilty of the same thing. Jesus has just blessed them with a meal in the desert, and they're wondering, when are you going to give us another one? We deserve more, Jesus. And so they're still just being led by their natural flesh as opposed to a spirit that seeks Jesus. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And on him, God, has, God the Father has set his seal. When they said this, uh, when they, when, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God, that you believe in him and the one whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Prove it to us, Jesus. They're manipulating him. He's given them plenty of signs to believe that he's the son of God, but they're trying to manipulate him to get more of what they want out of him. Jesus is a genie, not God. He's a vending machine. That if we put the right change in, we get what we want. They've turned Jesus into a genie, and Jesus will have none of it. Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him who sent. Bow down to me. And even if I don't give you a whole other thing, you worship me and you follow me, right? You have to love me more than the bread you get from me. So they said to him, what sign shall we do? What work shall we perform? And then they quote this. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave bread from heaven to eat. And they quote, which is so ironic. Because Psalm 78 is about how Israel tries to manipulate God. And they quote it to Jesus. And saying, hey. And they totally miss the irony. The disobedience of their fathers they've inherited. The way that they mistreated and rebelled and grumbled and mistreated God. They're now quoting to Jesus. And they're doing the same thing. They're hard-hearted. They're wanting to use Jesus, not worship him. Just like their fathers wanted to use God, not worship him. And don't you see that in your own hearts? Aren't you guilty of the same thing? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And that's not what they wanted. Jesus is like, and then he goes on to say, I'm the bread of life. You have to eat me. And they're like, that's weird. We're out of here. Uh, the reality is, is that we all in our human hearts want to use God for his things. Instead of appreciating his things as evidence of, 
and wanting God himself, the giver instead of just the gifts. And that requires a change of heart. So some takeaways from us. We'll land the plane here. So we need, I guess, what we need to do is that we need to acknowledge our sinfulness before God and that we really want to have ourselves on the throne and we want God to serve us. And we've inherited that from a long line, long history and so we need to confess that to God and repent of it and then go to Jesus, poor Jesus, that his death on the cross really does pay for our sin that his resurrection from the dead proves that not only does he give life and forgiveness, but he can change our hearts and our nature. We can receive a new nature that really does love God for God. And so we want to pray and ask God to change our hearts. So all history, even the bad stuff, is for God's glory and our good. So we should tell the story. Tell the story of God's redemption in Scripture. The gospel is an explanation of the meaning of the historical process culminating in a historical event. The death and resurrection of Jesus is a historical event with a past and a future. And we have to tell the story. We have to tell the story of Scripture. The Bible didn't come down like a dictionary. It came down as a story because it's the story of God. It's a history that we need to know and tell. We must know and teach theology and systematic theology from the Scriptures. What do those mean? Biblical theology is the story of Scripture, what God has done. I've just talked about God created, humanity rebelled, God set forth a rescue plan in Jesus, redemption, and there's a culmination. One day he will remake the entire world. That's a story. It's a narrative. There's a plot to Scripture. That's the biblical theology. We also need systematic theology, which then makes sense of it. Because I could tell that story and none of you would be saved by knowing that story. You need to know how to enter the story. And here's how we enter the story is we have to make it personal. And that's what systematic theology does. Is that we need to know that God is holy. And he is the creator and we're accountable to him. And we need to know that man, though made in his image and wonderful and glorious in many ways, is sinful and fallen. And is going to be held accountable to that holy God. But Christ is the perfect God-man who came in the flesh to live a perfect life, very death for our sin, and rose again from the dead and is now seated on high and is ruler of all things. And if we will turn from our rebellion and trust in him, we can enter into his story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And then one day he will. He will make all things new. He will totally purge us of sin. He will give us new bodies. He will live in a new world and we'll be in perfect fellowship with him for eternity. That's a systematic theology. How does God's story intersect with you and individual? What's the on-ramp into his story? And that's what systematic theology does, is it takes us into the story of God and how he, can be, he, how he is saving the world and how we can be saved um, in that story. So we need to know both biblical theology and systematic theology. We must teach that to our children. And we must collaborate in the passing on of this gospel message in history to the next generation. Both parents and churches need to work together. Singles and marrieds and grandparents and kids, older kids teaching younger kids, like everybody collaborating to see the gospel go into the future, to the next generation. That's our job to do together with Christ always at the center so at home, we need to read our Bibles regularly. We need to have family devotions. I love story Bibles. I put a couple up here just because I thought maybe I would. I love this one. 
This Jesus Storybook Bible is awesome for anybody to just learn about what the big story of the Bible is. So if you're an adult and you're kind of new to some of this, don't be afraid to pick up this little story Bible and the scriptures. I love this one too, which we're going to use with our kids' ministry here starting in September 13th, this Gospel Story Bible. And we're going to teach our kids systematically Sunday after Sunday what the story of scripture is. And it comes with this, oh, sorry, this family devotional that we do, and we're almost done with it. You can see where our bookmark is. Because we want our kids to know the story. We want them to know the story. And, and, and so there's some resources there. I just thought I would bring some if you uh, are interested in those. In the church, we need to have expositional preaching that works through books of the Bible, that tells the whole story, not just six steps to being a better parent, but what has God done in Christ? redeem humanity. That's a much better way to preach and live. So us regularly over the next 50 years telling the story of scripture. In our small groups, we need to talk about how these things apply to us and about our stories. We need to confess our sins. Where have we failed and where have we seen God be faithful? We need to have book studies where we understand like with the guys where uh, a bunch of men are, are meeting Monday mornings to work through union with Christ. What does it mean that we are united with Christ? And we're going to do that because we want to pass this on to others. And kids' classes, like I talked about, but Christ always as the center. Amen? We must teach our children. That's what Psalm 78 says, because we don't want them to be just like us. We want them to know and follow Jesus Christ. Let's bow and let's pray. Oh, God, this is a, a massive psalm that retells a significant portion in Israel's history and and yet it leaves us hanging. It has this hope for David. And while David was wonderful, David ultimately fell short of really bringing the people to you. But God, we thank you that you sent another David, a son of David. One who has the power not just to point people to you, but has the power to actually change people's hearts from the inside. And so, Lord, we ask for that. We as parents, we can put logs of scripture on the fire. We can put doctrine um, in the in the furnace, but only you can send the fire, Lord. We can't convert our kids. We, can't, we can only teach them your ways and then pray that you would, would ignite the fire, that you would make them alive, that you would change their nature. So, Lord, help us as parents and as a church to be faithful, to do our part in teaching our kids the story of the gospel and teaching one another the story of the gospel. And, God, we pray that by your spirit you would come and ignite it into a flame uh, of passion that you would our kids. And Lord, I pray that would be true for us too. Not just for the kids, but all of us. Our hearts inflamed with the stories and doctrines of Scripture and that it results in a burning passion and love for you. So God, we ask you to forgive us of our sins. Help us to help change our history. Help change, um, uh, help us learn from our history so that we might be changed in the, pre in the future. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen.
Is that me? Okay. Yeah, if you can be seated just for a couple moments. We just want to give a moment here um, for some reflection, maybe some questions if there are any. Yeah, I, I have a few questions, and then uh, I'll open it up to anyone here who can ask a question. Um, so first question, so many folks you'll often hear even in churches will say, well, Psalm 78 is about the Old Testament. It's about uh, Israel and the Jewish people. And most of us here don't have a Jewish background, I imagine. So, I mean, in what sense is that our story? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 actually tells us, um, uh, it recounts, it says, I, want, I, I do not want you to, this is, this is uh, Paul speaking to what would be, uh, Corinth is not a Jewish center. This would be non-Jewish people. Um, but he says to them, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, so he says that even those who are believers, in a sense, have Israel as their fathers, uh, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into, the, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual drink and all drank the same spiritual food. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So Christ was present with the people of Israel through their journeys in the wilderness. Christ is present. It's one, it's one family. It's one family of God. Um, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these two things took place as examples for us, us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then he goes on. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, um, so even for a non-Jewish person coming to faith in Christ, they enter the family of God, and this becomes, this whole Bible becomes our family history. Um, and so, yes. Paul in the New Testament would certainly say, our fathers, speaking not just to Jewish people, primarily non-Jewish people, would go, hey, you know, the Jewish story is now your story because Christ is, is, the, is the fulfillment of that, the one that ties us together. Yeah, that's good. Um, the other question is, is, I mean, how can parents, or even just households in general in the church, what does it look like? Like you said, family devotions, these sorts of things. Yeah. What does that actually I mean, yeah. how do you guys do that? What does yeah. that look like in practice? What are, or what are steps that a family might take if, say, they aren't, don't do that? Right. Yep. Good. Um, I like uh, even just the template that's put here of 78, 1 through 3. You know, it, it starts with us. Like, come and hear. So I need to be in God's Word myself. I can't, I can't expect my kids to be more excited about God's Word than I am, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's something to that, that your kids seeing you read your Bible, and I'm not always very good about this, is that I often have my time with God sort of apart, but I'm trying to at least at times remember to have that in front of them because that is a shaping influence. Not to put on a show, but just to go, I don't know if my dad ever really communes with God. Oh, I know he does because he's, he's over there with his Bible open. And so I think it starts there by example, a genuine example, not just put on a show, but a genuine example of I want to know God, I want to know my story, I want to know the saving story. Um, but then it comes, you know, that second one is then a resolve, a resolve that I want my kids to know God earlier and better than I did, right? Earlier and better than I did. Even, even though I personally grew up in a Christian home, I want my kids to get saved even earlier than I did and to grow even faster than I did, right? And so, um, so I think there's that motivation there. Um, and then I do think a, a good story Bible like this, mm -hmm. um, we're going to try to set that up. In fact, starting September 13th, we're going to try to add in a Bible study time or Sunday school time at 9, 9.15. We're still working that out. But we're going to teach systematically um, kids 
through the scriptures. And what I love about the curriculum we're going to use is there's a family, minute, family devotional that people mm-hmm. can just do at home. You can do it mm-hmm. once a week. You can do it five days a week. Um, and actually, you wouldn't even necessarily have kids. I think actually anyone would benefit just by working systematically. And that's one of the beauty of these story Bibles is that you can really get bogged down in Leviticus. And it's not the same as a Bible. I don't want you to think it's the same thing as the Word of God. But it can help you at least get the story of going, like, so don't be too uh, arrogant to think that you can't learn from kids stuff, you know. Um, I, I think that Sunday school teachers, people who teach kids, probably grow the most spiritually because they have to take these big thoughts of God, has to kind of pass through them, these kids, and they're benefiting from it. So yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but... No, that's yeah. good. That's a few things. I could think of others, but... Yeah, Melody and I recently actually listened to a podcast of uh, a pastor that recently wrote a book, actually for families as well, kind of one of, one of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But in the podcast, the he said, you know, don't immediately try to become super godly, you know, right. a few minutes a day, you know, yep. as a family around yep. breakfast or dinner or something like that. Yep. And start small and, and build. So yep. that was kind of encouraging for us because <laughs> we were trying to get started. Um, yeah, and we set these expectations. An hour a day, five days a week. No, do it three minutes, mm-hmm. twice a week. And then just build. Yeah. Like, just build your appetite. It's an, in some ways, this is an acquired taste because we have this sin nature that still fights us a little bit. So let's just start, like, slow progression. We've got all of eternity, so we don't have to... <laughs> yeah. And if we get sidelined, just get back on the road, you know? Like, I've missed two weeks of my quiet time. Well, do one today. Yeah. Like, just start over. Don't beat yourself up because Satan would love to shame us into thinking we're not doing enough. But Christ has purchased that so we can just get out of the ditch and just go. Like, just just go. Yeah, yeah that's so. good. I have one more question then I'll open it up. Uh, you talked a lot about, you know, we need to know this story. Um, I guess my question, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of head knowledge. Like, you know, sure. we've all got to put yeah. in lots of study mm-hmm. time or something like that. What does that mean? How does that work its way out into our lives? Like, yeah. wh- what's the relationship of following Jesus then to that? Yeah, I mean, Romans 12 tells us you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's not going to get to your heart unless it goes through your mind. Like, yeah. so I do think that there is an aspect of study. I don't think just reading your Bible. Like, I just, there's never been a generation in history that has gotten godly apart from God's word, you know, mm-hmm. so to think that we can some sort of microwave that into like a verse of the day or something like that. Like we've got to spend time here. So I do think it takes time. I do think it takes our minds. We are a whole being. So we can't detach our heads and our hearts. Like if we want our hearts to change, we want our affections to change. We want to stop loving sin so much. We want to start loving God more. Well, the pipeline to that is, is, is the mind. Like, so I need to fill my mind with the kinds of things that then shape my heart. Now, I can't stay there. We don't want yeah. just a head knowledge, but it's... So, the music I listen to, the shows I watch, all of that is teaching me things. Yeah. All of that is shaping my affections. Mm-hmm. And so, it's hard if it's like I'm showing up to church once a month, I'm reading my Bible maybe a couple times a month, but I'm watching a whole lot of whatever, news or Facebook, well, then obviously your affections are going to be shaped by what you most consume. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I think that it's, I, I don't think there's any way around Bible reading and community and sermons and just a lot of time, good podcasts mm-hmm. and books. And so, um, but don't let it start, stop there. You want it to go all the way to the affections, all the way to the things that I love and delight in. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's good. Yeah. Any, any questions?
Anyone have a or semen? Yeah. You want to restate that for the yeah. recording? Yep. Yeah. Um, so the question is kind of there's the pattern of forgetting that leads to idolatry, uh, idolatry in the psalm, and so uh, the question is how do we sort of how what is the best way I guess to catch ourselves or ways we can catch ourselves in, when we're in that early forgetting stage? Is that good? Mm -hmm. I think there's practical things. I think just being committed to being at church every Sunday at least goes, there's at least a, a weekly check that I'm like, I'm, brought, I'm confronted with the word of God, with God's people. You know, so I think, I think the amount of time that we go before we're kind of checked, have our hearts checked, is a big part of it, which is why I think it talks about um, meditate on God's word morning and evening. So maybe there's something scripturally about I should have something that prompts me um, to interact with God in the morning and something in the evening. Like the Bible just gives us a lot of this like practical, like even in space time of like, okay, don't go long without being confronted with God and his word. I think community is a part of that, being committed. This is why I'm a big fan of like be committed to a small group and be relentless about meeting there because it's at least an opportunity for your, your forgetfulness to be stopped, you know, like. Um, so I think those are some of the things, like a regular quiet time, you know, because our hearts are naturally going to drift that way. They're just naturally going to drift. And the longer they drift, the further into idolatry they go. So I want to try to create a lot of interruptions to where my heart, my, my forgetfulness just doesn't get to go very long before it's all of a sudden like reset, you know. So, so I think just practically some of those regular rhythms and habits are uh, are important. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians that only show up like at Christmas and Easter. And so what they have is they have six full months of forgetting and idolatry with maybe a couple of interruptions. And then there's kind of this big jolt. And it's like, okay, I'm pat, you know, but man, just be committed to some disciplines, like being with God's people every week, you know, being in his word consistently. And don't beat yourself up when you fail. Just get back to, no, I need those because if I continue to be forgetful, I'll become an idolater. I'm going to worship something, and if I'm not regularly um, disciplining myself to worship God, I, I'll worship something else. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Good question. Oh, yeah, just a second one, yeah. Like you can go for it. So the question is, um, how do we, we all bring sort of our sin, sin, brokenness, garbage into the church, how do we practically help each other and walk with uh -huh. each other in that and deal, deal with the mess we bring into the church? I love just the honesty of the psalm. Like, this is what we did again and again, and it just is relentless. Like, so I think we have to be honest and not whitewash our stories. So we have to create an environment where it's like, okay, we are all sinful. No one in here is apart from God's grace. All of us need Christ entirely. But creating this gracious culture where we can tell our stories honestly, even where we continue to fail, and be embraced, you know, because we're repenting, we're, we're seeking God, we're, we're trying to turn from these things. And so um, I think it requires courage because it takes, it takes a few people to go first, right? Everybody's thinking it and everybody's kind of feeling it out and afraid or like, can I really be myself here? So someone has to break through and go, hey, here's, here's who I am and here's what I've dealt with and here's my history and even though I've failed, God has been faithful, and I'm clinging to him. And then everyone else in the circle goes, oh, thank God, me too. And then you can tell your story. And I think there's this domino effect where we stop performing, stop pretending, 
and we realize we're just honest about our failures before God, and yet he's been so kind to us. Like, he continues to provide for us. So I think it has to require us telling our stories with each other and then celebrating them, not judging or evaluating or I'm better than he is or she's better than I am. Like, just get all of that. We're all broken before the Mm -hmm. foot of the cross, and we're all in need of grace, and none of us are done yet, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I could go on about that. but Yeah, I think think the only other thing is it will take time to right. walk with each other through that. Absolutely. So. Yep. Okay, great. Thanks for hanging in there, guys. Let me give us our benediction. Please stand. You made it through one of the longest psalms in the scriptures. So congratulations. High five each other on your way out. Uh, I do encourage you to leave a prayer request or if you have something that you want me to pray about or something you want to interact with me about, that'd be great. Make sure you hang out a little bit, talk to each other a little bit out in, outside. That would be great. I know it's hot out there, but uh, don't miss an opportunity to encourage one another or share a prayer request. Um, our, our benediction comes from Psalm 78, verse 4. We will not hide them from, uh, from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glory and his might and the wonders that he has done. May God always be at the center. May his glory always be at the center of our conversations. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.